Hello and welcome to episode 18 of Blokeology, evidence-based health, fitness and lifestyle. My name is Jürgen Larsson. In today's episode, I want to talk a little bit more about some evidence. And as we are in the middle of summer here in the UK, and it is proving to be a particularly warm and hot summer, I thought I would go through some of the basic evidence around recommendations on how to train and do exercise and be involved in physical activity in the heat. So the show notes will be at www.blocology.io forward slash 018. Let's crack on. Okay, so most of the guidance that I'm going to talk about today is derived from a single paper, uh, and that is the consensus recommendations on training and competing in the heat. Um, And it's from the uh, British Journal of Sports Medicine back in 2015. And I'm going to talk about a couple of other papers as we go through. But this one's pretty good at just clarifying some of the key findings and setting out some of the most important things to think about when it comes to doing exercise in the heat. Now, being the British Journal of Sports Medicine, there is, of course, quite a lot of emphasis on elite athletes and elite competition and professional athletics and sport in this paper. But there's also lots of good information here for anybody at whatever level you're at, whether you're just running the couch to, well, you know, whether you're going through the couch to 5K program and you're just getting into exercise or whether you're uh, planning ultras all at an amateur level, there's certainly plenty here for you. So uh, let's go through some of the findings in that. So uh, the uh, first thing I will say is that the paper is open access. So um, it's freely available on the internet. You don't need to be subscribed or be an academic to get access to it. So it's um, all there for you to look at as well. Uh, But I'm going to pick out some of the highlights. So at the moment, the temperatures in the UK at the time of recording are in the low 30s in um, degrees Celsius uh, in the southeast of England. Up here in the northwest, it hasn't been quite so warm in recent days, but it's still hit the high 20s. And it's certainly... uh, slightly above the seasonal average. Uh, And we've been in the grip of a particularly long and hot and pleasant summer in that regard. And it's been a couple of months since we've seen any real rain up here. So we should all certainly be getting used to running in the heat, but it's noticeable that it still takes its effect on you. Now, one of the things that happens in terms of the physiology when you exercise in the heat is that there's an increase in blood flow to the skin and there's an increase in the amount that you sweat. Now, of course, what that requires is is your body to put in extra physiological effort and extra physiological strain associated with that. So you tend to see a rise in your heart rate when you're running in the heat compared to uh, if you're running in more uh, temperate conditions. And certainly my experience is that I end up having to go a lot slower uh, just to accommodate that. And... um, that heat stress alone is enough to significantly reduce my kind of performance and I get hotter and hotter and um, that has an impact. Uh, Of course, the other thing that it does is when you sweat a lot is that you become dehydrated and um, there's clearly some evidence around what dehydration can do to your ability to exercise and your ability to um, manage your performance and the cardiovascular strain put on your system. So it's undoubtedly hard when you're first running in the heat. Uh, And so there are some things you can do to try to mitigate that a little bit. Uh, And there are three main areas I'm going to cover. Um, And as per uh, 
this paper. So the first one is about climatization and what that means and what happens and how long it takes and how long it lasts for. The second one is really delving into that area around hydration and how to stay hydrated. Uh, we will touch a little bit on hyponatremia, so that's when you get a low sodium and what's known sometimes as water intoxication. But I'm not going to go into great detail on that because it's quite a complex area and it might well be one for um, an episode in the near future to delve into a little bit further. Uh, and the third thing I want to talk about is cooling strategies because there is some evidence around that and what works best and what doesn't work so well. Uh, the last bit in this paper, which I'm not going to talk very long about, but I will mention just at the end, uh, are the recommendations for event organizers. So if you are involved in an event, uh, you'll know the kind of things that you might want to take into consideration. Right, so the first thing to talk about is heat acclimatization. Now, the whole point about it being hot is that actually if you spend enough time in hot conditions, your body will adjust to it. Um, and I used to be in the army, and when I was out in the army, I was posted to Brunei out in Southeast Asia. And we used to have a policy there that basically for the first couple of weeks, uh, you were on reduced duties, the uh, physical training wasn't compulsory, and there was a recognition you needed at least a couple of weeks in order to acclimatize to the heat. And of course, being on near the equator, it was particularly humid there. Uh, and that fits with the evidence that's detailed in this paper. Now, the kind of adaptations that happen are that you will gradually get better at, um, you actually get better at sweating and your skin blood flow responses improve. Um, you're, there's a general expansion in the amount of um, plasma that's part of your kind of blood, then that gets better. And you get, there's basically a kind of what's described as an improved cardiovascular stability. And that just means that there are some changes that happen that allow you to sustain uh, your blood pressure and your cardiac output, which make you feel, um, which keep ensure you stay as capable out in the heat. So it's certainly if you're going to compete in an exercise, I mean, in a hot climate, in a hotter climate, um, acclimatization is an absolutely key part of the process. And if you um, are more of an amateur and you're going out into hotter climates, it's certainly worth bearing in mind how you might go about trying to get some acclimatization before you get out there because uh, the differences can be quite marked. So the kind of adaptations that will happen, most of them will occur in the first week. There are some further changes that happen in the next two weeks, but um, you're looking at sort of six to 10 days to get very nearly all the way there to complete cardiovascular adaptation. At least that's what the paper suggests and it's what's, well, that's what this review paper suggests in the consensus guidelines. My experience is that actually that was kind of pretty much the minimum. And I think that's partly because a lot of this acclimatization, it relies on you doing a significant amount of exercise every day in order to acclimatize in that period. If you're just turning up and you're going out for a run two or three times a week, it may actually take longer than a couple of weeks to get acclimatized. I, I recall a particularly unpleasant experience when I was out in Brunei running a 10K when I'd been in country for two or three weeks, but I absolutely suffered prodigiously. I, was, I felt really unpleasantly unwell, got lightheaded, wanted to vomit, could barely carry on. And um, it wasn't a lot of fun when you're running alongside Gurkhas and um, you're not really, you're looking like a pretty, pretty inadequate in general um, certainly I noticed even the week after that I was a lot better, but um, I noted that for one of these papers, it actually suggested that the acclimatization process involved doing nine to 12 days of consecutive exercise to exhaustion, <laughs> um, which sounds like complete torture. 
Um, but they noted that they went from um, an initial exercise capacity. So these were obviously relatively fit people at the start of 48 minutes to exhaustion when they were running at um, 60% of their VO2 max. And they got all the way up to 80 minutes by that nine to 12 day point. So around about 10 days. But I would advise that if you're going to do that, you probably need to be exercising, not like hard every single day. You don't have to exercise to exhaustion, but you've got to be getting out there and putting your body through the kind of normal processes in order to um, achieve that acclimatization. You can't just turn up, sit on a sunbed for a week and then expect to do your Ironman without any difficulty. Um, one thing they did note was that if you've been acclimatized in the past, it tends to come back a little bit quicker. Um, and but, you know, there are there's a relatively there's something called, uh, you know, what they call the decay It's like how quickly do these adaptations go away once you've got them? And they seem to take a little bit longer to go away than they do to arrive. So actually, you know, it might be up to a month that you remain, you keep the majority of the benefits. They sort of suggest two to four weeks. They did notice that particularly highly trained athletes acclimatize quicker. But um, you've got, if you go away, say you were planning an event and you were able to get away somewhere warm for a week, three or four weeks before the event, you'll certainly still be carrying some benefit later on. Now, that isn't, of course, an issue for most people. Most people are just out doing a bit of running, want to know how long they're going to be before they adjust to the heat that they're in. I guess that's part of the difficulty in the UK, that we rarely get long periods of sustained warm weather. Um, and uh, so it's difficult to acclimatise in quite the same way. Um, it is possible to do some of it um, using lab testing by um, exercising in warmer environments. And there is some evidence that suggests that will give you um, an acclimatization benefit. But they also note that the benefit doesn't really seem to be as good as the kind of uh, realistic outdoor activity that you're planning to do. You know, that you need to be in the same environment, ideally. But it is possible to get some benefit by training indoors in a warmer room. Um, so you will get the first. So in summary, you get the early adaptations in the first few days. Main benefits are at least after a week. And you probably need at least a couple of weeks in order to get those. They actually suggest that if you want to acclimatize, you need to allow at least 60 minutes a day where you really get your body temperature up, you get your core temperature up and you get sweating. Um, but I think if you stick to it, if you're a regular runner in this hot weather, if you stick to it, to it for a week or two, take it easier, give yourself a chance to adapt. If you're running regularly, by the time you get through a couple of weeks, you're probably going to be um, more, more or less acclimatized. Right, moving on to hydration. Now, this is probably a more important one for most people. Um, the cooling one that comes after it is relatively hard to do, but the hydration one's really critical. And I think this probably merits an episode on its own just to discuss the issue around hyponatremia. So I'm just going to stick to a relatively straightforward summary uh, today. So um, it's obviously incredibly important. Everybody knows that. If you, and most people know that if you get dehydrated, you tend to suffer in terms of your, your performance. Actually, as the paper suggests, that's not 100% wholly accepted that dehydration impairs your aerobic performance. And there's a bit of a debate that goes on about it. But um, I'd be very careful about this. The paper cites some recent studies that suggest dehydration of even up to 4% didn't affect cycling performance, but they pointed out that those were in particularly well-trained male cyclists, uh, and um, that may not be realistic. Most people, I think, would suggest that as soon as you get past a couple of percent, you know, in terms of body weight, if you lose body mass, if you lose 2% of that 
one or two percent, then you're going to notice uh, performance difficulties. Um, there is an interesting suggestion that basically, I think some of this is a pushback against the um, uh, some elements of the uh, sports beverage industry that a lot of the concerns about dehydration are basically being hyped up, overemphasized by those sports beverage companies. Um, and that, of course, is for obvious reasons that they're keen to sell you their um, product. Um, I think there's an important point there that you need to be wary about um, any conflicts of interest. And we see this all the time in the medical literature with most commonly pharmaceutical companies. But there are lots of other industries and uh, businesses out there where it's in their interest to um, highlight uh, medical conditions where their products may help. So um, I'd be careful of that. But I would suggest that um, if you are doing much longer events, kind of ultras, Ironmans, that kind of thing, you've got to really pay attention to dehydration. It can be really a massive problem. For those of us who are running maybe, you know, regularly every day, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, an hour, even a couple of hours, you're probably not going to run into too much difficulty and on your typical days. When it is particularly hot, it is possible to lose a lot of fluids in a short period of time. Uh, you know, and ranges of up to even, you know, a litre, a litre and a half of sweat um, from vigorous exercising when it's hot have been detailed. And that will quickly leave you feeling pretty crispy and not too great. Uh, there is an interesting link between dehydration and performance in that um, actually as you dehydrate, you know, you then will reduce your sweat rate and that can result in you becoming hotter. Uh, and that will also result in your performance. So there's a kind of a quite a close link that's well worth bearing in mind. And my general sort of pragmatic advice on this is that, yeah, if you're out for a longer event, you've got to pay attention to your hydration status. But you don't need to obsess too greatly about it unless you're doing particularly long events. But there are some guidelines for exactly what um, would be about the right amount to take. First thing to do is probably to make sure that you're, is that you're adequately hydrated before you exercise. So you're starting from a neutral position. Uh, and the best way to do that is probably just to make sure that you're peeing, you know, peak clear once a day being the advice in that regard. One kind of guideline to, is that about six mil of water per kilogram of body mass um, about every two to three hours is right for training um, or competing in the heat. And that will just generally keep you on top. If you're a particularly heavy sweater, that might be a little bit light. Now, for me, I'm about 75 kilos and that actually works out as six times 75 is 450. So say, let's say 500 mil every two to three hours. And actually that feels about right. If I go out for a bicycle ride for a couple of hours, I'll take a single bottle, 500 mil. If it's particularly warm, then actually I'll take, I'll, put, I'll stick an extra bottle on my bike um, and that'll be about right. So that doesn't feel too far off for me and it's a useful guidance. So if you're out for a couple of hours, ideally you want to be looking at around 450, 500 mil if you're around 75 to 80 kilos. Um, if you're up at the 15, 16 stone range, that's about kind of 95 kilos plus. That works out as about 600 mil. So that gives you a bit of guidance that just for, you know, a bit of a baseline that actually if you stick to that, you won't get into too much difficulty. Uh, so next comes the thorny question of sodium and salt. Now, this is particularly uh, important to people because they worry about the possibility of hyponatremia. So hyponatremia just means low salt in the blood. And there's that concern. You know, severe hyponatremia is extremely serious, extremely dangerous. Uh, and potentially life-threatening as well. 
Um, I was looking before this episode for a paper that I'd seen just recently that measured, um, looked at people's salt uh, levels in their blood, sodium levels in their blood before a long race. And uh, the one thing I remember noticing from it is that far more people have had problems with dehydration rather than actually necessarily um, any suggestion of overhydration. So the general advice for this is that if you're exercising for more than an hour, it would probably be reasonable to put some salt into your drink or to take a drink which involves um, some sodium in it. Now, you can buy sports drinks that do that. Actually, it's relatively easy to do it with um, adding salt yourself. A, a pinch of salt, it probably has about a gram of, um, it's probably about a gram and that's 400 milligrams of sodium. So um, a, just a, you know, a fairly heavy pinch in a liter of water is probably just about the right amount. Um, and that is probably accurate enough for most people. I actually personally, even when I go out for a couple of hours, just tend to stick to water and I don't find that a massive problem for me. I take a bottle of water, 500 ml, and I'm absolutely fine. But um, there's some guidance in this paper which suggests those are about the right amounts and they may be of some benefit to you. My general feeling on this for day-to-day -day exercise is that um, even though as people who are exercising regularly, we may lose more salt, we'll tend to make that up in the diet. The you know, the Western diet is absolutely loaded with salt. And even if you're relatively careful, it's relative, It's quite hard to avoid taking um, at least as much salt as the recommended guidance. So we're probably in little danger of being depleted of salt and depleted of sodium in our day-to-day -day lives. Something to look out for, but um, not something to worry about too much. Um, there is actually an entire statement uh, from the Third International Exercise-Associated Hyponatremia Consensus Development Conference on the, in the British Journal of Sports Medicine from 2015. Uh, I'm not going to go through that today because it is quite detailed. Let me just give you the headline points when it comes to avoiding um, hyponatremia. Uh, and the main sort of risk factors that you have to watch out for, it's really overloading and over-drinking water in sports drinks. And in any kind of beverage of any variety, to the extent that you actually gain weight during exercise. And that tends to be more of a problem if you're exercising for more than four hours, if you're relatively inexperienced, if you tend to be a little bit slower, or you've got a very high or a very low body mass index. That's the thing to watch out for when it comes to avoiding exercise-associated hyponatremia. And really, mostly it's about overdrinking. So if you've got a decent idea of what you should be drinking over the period of time, and as long as you're not hammering it too hard, you shouldn't run into too much difficulty. And having an overall awareness of the kind of fluid losses you might have are particularly important. And one of the things that was really emphasized in this paper that I think is particularly important to mention is that drinking sodium-containing sports drinks will not prevent exercise associated with hyponatremia. Who, If you overdrink, it won't matter because those drinks are hypotonic. They have less sodium in than is in your system anyway. So you will run into difficulties. You cannot replace that sodium. So um, the, the key is not to overdrink. And the best way to manage that is to have a good understanding of what your requirements are. Okay, so the next section to run through is cooling strategies. Now, obviously, if you're getting too hot, cooling yourself down seems like a good idea. That's not exactly uh, radical. Um, but there are quite a few papers that have looked into detail about how best to achieve that. So the kind of things they've looked at are cold water immersion, cooling garments, drinking cold fluids uh, and drinking ice slurries as well. Uh, some kind of slushy, presumably that is as well, uh, and mixing them all up together. Now, uh, cold water immersion isn't really much of an option 
uh, for your average runner or cyclist when you're out and about. Uh, and there is actually some, uh, there may be an interesting one for um, swim run competitors. Uh, there is actually some evidence that it could give you problems if it cools down your big leg muscles and the muscles doing all the work. Uh, and ideally, you want to selectively cool your body, your torso, in order to uh, reduce that kind of overall thermal strain. Uh, I'm not sure how realistic it is to use cooling garments as well. Like some athletes will obviously use things like ice vests. Clearly, that's not going to be much of an option when you're out running. Uh, so onto cold, cold fluid ingestion. Um, and it's been suggested that cold fluids could help when taken before, but not necessarily during exercise. Now, that's an interesting little wrinkle. And that seems to be because there is actually a possibility that taking them during exercise might cause a reduction in sweating and therefore reduce that heat loss you're losing through evaporation. So you get too hot. And that's because of these little thermoreceptors that are probably found in the abdominal area. So taking particularly cold fluids as a distinct strategy during um, heat exercise and the heat may not actually benefit you. So cooling methods, while they'd be nice, if we could get them while we're out and about running, you know, ice towels, ice garments, uh, there's nothing that's going to be too easy to manage once you're several hours or a couple of hours into a longer run. Uh, I've seen some guidance on some forums and other places that suggest things like, you know, soaking a buff in water, sticking it in the freezer before you go out. Now, that'll work nicely at the start of the run, but clearly is going to um, reduce uh, as you uh, go through it. But then things like, you know, simply if you go past a stream or a water, but now soak a garment, soak a hat, soak a cap if you're wearing one. I often do that if I'm out on a hot day and I am wearing a cap to protect me from the sun, is that I'll soak that in water at any, uh, at any opportunity when I'm out on the fells. Not an awful lot in the evidence to uh, recommend any one thing very clearly. So the last one is about recommendations for event organizers, and I won't spend too much time on this, but I will mention something called the wet bulb globe temperature, the WBGT. Now that's often used um, to determine if uh, heat level and the kind of uh, heat stress in the environment has got above a certain level where we need to be a bit careful. Uh, and I've got fond memories of the WBGT because it's something when we were in the army, we used to do regularly when the weather was hot to uh, decide what kind of, whether we went past a critical level and we would suggest reducing uh, physical exercise. You're probably unlikely to have access to that, but it's worth bearing in mind that uh, heat stress isn't necessarily just associated with uh, dry heat. There can be problems with humidity as well. Um, it's worth mentioning that the paper was clear that actually if you acclimatize in one particular heat environment, it seems to stand you in good stead for others as well. So if you're, you know, even if you're worried about going to a humid environment, if you're exercising in a dry heat that kind of acclimatization seems to stand you in good stead for um, either environment. Um, the other thing I was going to mention is that you need to be really careful about heat stress is that there seems to be some emerging evidence that if you've had a recent or a prior viral infection, that can be a really important factor for heat injury, heat illness, uh, what's sometimes known as heat stroke. So, you, you know, all these things, you've got to be careful about taking anything in isolation. You've got to look at your overall picture, you know, whether you've been acclimatized yourself whether you've been recently well or unwell, what kind of running you've been doing, what kind of access, you know, whether you might be, whether you're possibly a bit starting off on a run dehydrated, all those things together. Um, I would end on a note of caution that having seen a fair amount of heat illness when I was in the military, um, it's a really dangerous and worrying thing to happen. And it can have really serious long-term consequences as well. Uh, and one of those is it can be more susceptible to heat illness in the future. So um, 
I think we all have got to be really careful to respect it and to be very careful with the heat. Uh, and it's frustrating when we can't run as fast as we would like to run in this hotter weather. But um, our heart rates are still thumping along and uh, we're still getting the exercise and we should just enjoy being out. Okay, well, thanks for listening. You can find the full show notes at www.blokeology.io. You can also sign up for the newsletter, the Journal of Blokeology at www.blokeology.io forward slash journal. Sign up and I'll make sure that I send you the Healthy Bloke Action Plan. It would be enormously helpful if you've enjoyed the show, if you've got anything out of it, if you could pop over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review or just leave a rating, that would be incredibly helpful. And any feedback is very welcome. And so you can leave comments, send email, or make contact via Twitter, Facebook, and the usual social media channels, all of which can be found at blokeology.io. Thanks again. <laughs>